0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. All right, please open your Bibles to the book of Jude, second to the last New Testament book before Revelation Today we are looking at the fifth sola of the Reformation, Uh, sums up all the others, really. This is is the capstone here. It's the truth that the Reformers were most concerned about, and it is the central theme of the Bible. This is big. Soli Deo Gloria, uh, to God alone be glory, which is easy to say and tough to live. Uh, Life is not lived in neutral, as you know. We either glorify God or we're diving into idolatry or just dabbling in it. But either way, if we're not glorifying God, we are engaging in idolatry. Think of it this way you try to pray and, and your mind strays. You want to be honest, but you are prone to lie. You long for purity, but you battle lust. You want to work hard, but laziness is easy. You desire selflessness, but selfishness is like a magnet pulling you. It is not easy glorifying God. So we are focusing today on two verses, Jude 24 and 25, and here's what we're going to see. That God is worthy of all glory, and he will be glorified in and through his people in Christ now and forever. So if you're able, stand with me, I'm going to read these two verses, I want to remind you... This is the only perfect part of the worship service uh, when the Word of God is being read. Infallible, inspired, inerrant. So here it here it is, uh, Jude twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Please be seated. That was our prayer. That is a burst of praise to God, and, and that is our prayer today. Everything exists for the glory of God. The most important truth in the entire universe is the glory of God. The greatest doctrine is the glory of God. The highest goal of life is the glory of God. Psalm 19 begins, the heavens declare the glory of God. He reveals his glory in and through the world he made. So we enjoy eclipses like this last week and and volcanoes and birds and butterflies and all the other things God has created. We see his glory in creation. And he draws near to his chosen people and shows us more of his glory in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells believers, do all to the glory of God. Mankind's greatest goal is to give God glory. The Westminster Confession begins The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Mankind, made in the image of God, was made to give God glory. And God has most clearly revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The angels sang at the birth of Christ Glory to God in the highest. The glory, the Shekinah glory of God returned when Christ was born. The greatest charge in the world would be to be called a robber of God's glory, a stealer of God's glory. What happened to those in the Bible who refused to give God's glory? Uh, I think of Nadab and Abihu. They uh, didn't treat God as holy, they offered strange fire to God, and they paid with their lives. I think of Saul, who honored himself above God. I think of Eli, Eli, who honored his sons above God. In the New Testament, I think of Judas, honored the devil above Christ. I think of Herod in the book of Acts. He is is receiving glory from man. He is refusing to give glory to God. and, And the way he died was graphic. Let's just put it that way. He was eaten by worms and he died. No one wants to die like that. Right beside the sovereignty of God and salvation, you see the depravity of man breaking out in heinous ways. You see it all day long, 24-7. But God continually calls his people back to himself, uh, commanding and enabling us to reject idolatry. In 1 John five twenty-one, after... Five chapters of encouragement to live to please Christ. You come to the very last verse, and it says, keep yourself from idols. You just flip that around, and it's worship God alone. Keep yourself from idols. Idols provoke the wrath of God. Praise pleases God. This is really where the five solos come to their their crowning glory, their culmination, you've got five key Bible doctrines that were reclaimed during the Reformation 500 years ago. But they also need to be rediscovered afresh in every age until Christ returns. I am shocked sometimes at how many professing believers do not know these basic truths of their faith in Christ. Scripture alone God has revealed Himself in His supreme and sufficient Word that shows us the way of salvation. That way of salvation is by grace alone. God's unmerited kindness, His grace extended, His sovereign initiative in salvation, where He changes hearts through faith alone, which is a gift, it paves the way. The justification, where God instantaneously declares you in a right relationship with Him through faith in Christ alone, the only Savior, the only Sacrifice, the only Mediator between God and man, and it is all for God's glory alone, solely Deo Gloria. Psalm 3, verse 8 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. So you've got scripture alone telling us the true doctrine of salvation, sola scriptura. You've got salvation by God's free grace alone, sola gratia. You've you've got it being received by the empty hand of faith alone, sola fide. You've got Christ alone accomplishing everything necessary, sola Christus. And what you see is salvation is exclusively from God. No part man. So the glory is to God alone. This is the context of what we're looking at here. The glory that Jude is proclaiming is the glory to God alone in salvation. That's the context. Jude is addressing this in a relatively small amount of biblical real estate. His name means praise. He's praising the glories of God's grace. He's rejoicing in the salvation God gives. But he doesn't just do that. It should teach us something really important that's very obvious, by the way. You don't just praise God and glorify God in a vacuum. You do so here on earth in the midst of very difficult life, in the midst of a spiritual battle. So what he's doing is he pronounces glory to God. But he also denounces those who lead others into fear falsehood, and not glorifying God. Jude was written after 2 Peter, before Rome's destruction in AD 70, written by Jude, the brother of Jesus. He identifies himself as, as brother of James, James the Lord's brother who led the Jerusalem church. And you need to remember that before the crucifixion and resurrection, Jude didn't believe in Jesus as Savior. Uh, Afterwards, he humbly submits to Christ's lordship. He's not name-checking himself as Jesus' brother here. Now, in that time that he wrote, Christianity was under severe political attack from Rome. It was also under an aggressive infiltration from apostates who were sowing seeds of doctrinal error. At that point, all the disciples had been martyred except for John, and Jude is calling the church literally to fight for truth in the midst of a spiritual, intense spiritual war. This is the context in which we find these verses. Judas is condemning apostates. He is commanding believers to contend for the faith. Judas is the only New Testament book that's devoted exclusively to confronting apostasy. Apostasy is defecting from true biblical faith, where you say, well, I'm holding to it, but now I'm not anymore. And and, and Jude reads like a profile of an apostate, like a how-to manual on how not to glorify God. He says that they're ungodly, they're morally perverted, they deny Christ, they defile the flesh, they're rebellious, they revile holy angels. They're dreamers, ignorant, corrupted, grumblers, fault-finders, self-seeking, arrogant speakers, flatterers, mockers. He says they cause divisions. He says they're worldly-minded, and they're without the Spirit of God. They're not saved. They're, they're hidden reefs. I love the word, word pictures in, in Jude. I remember when I was in high school, we went to, to Hawaii, and I was boogie boarding um, off the Big Island, and I got sucked under by a wave, and a hidden reef came up and bit my head. Right here, if you're part of my family, you can feel this later, but right here, the dent is still there. Right here. I'm I'm feeling it right now. It was a hidden reef. He is saying that the people that have infiltrated the church are like hidden reefs that are going to harm the church. And not only that, they're waterless clouds. Uh, They're promising rain, but there's nothing there. And they're fruitless trees. Sticks on the ground. No fruit. Wild waves just foaming up, but... They're empty. Now, in contrast to apostates, true believers are absolutely committed to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. As the psalmist said, not to us, not to us, but to your name be glory, O God. So, this is a, a doxology. Let's look at these two verses. This is, a, this is praise to God for his glory in saving. Jude 24 and 25, these two verses, one of the greatest expressions of of God's glory in the whole Bible. Beautiful, beautiful benediction, doxology, and it's a grand declaration of one thing and one thing alone, God's glory. And our outline today is very simple, in salvation, in God's redemptive plan, the glory goes to God, it's through Christ and it's from his people, from us. God reveals himself in creation, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, uh, but he has revealed himself in Christ, and those who are saved in Christ praise him, they glorify him, they give him glory through Christ. So let's look at this, verse 24, let's start there. First, that all glory must go to God. All glory must go to God. Jude 24 begins like this, now to him, to God. God. Jude 25 is continuing the same praise and says, to the only God, our Savior. Now to him, to the only God, our Savior. Why is all glory due to him? We'll look at verse 24. Look at the next phrase. Now to him who is able. We're talking about God's omnipotence here. He's all-powerful. And it says that he can keep you from stumbling. Now, every believer knows you stumble into sin, you stumble into temptation, you, you do things that don't please God. This is talking about ultimate stumbling into hell. He's going to keep you from stumbling out of the faith, and he's going to make you stand in the presence of his glory with great joy. Why? Why? Because he's God alone. He's the only one who can. See, the keeping is all his because the glory is all his the keeping is all his therefore all the glory goes to him it says he can keep you from stumbling literally being you would be sure-footed like a horse that doesn't um, stumble on a trail or like a hiker that keeps his footing and doesn't you know tumble over the cliff christ upholds believers from falling away from the faith this if you're a believer today this, you take this one to the bank, and, and it's here for you forever, that, that you know that God is able to keep you from stumbling and falling away from the faith. And what's the next phrase? He is going to present you faultless. Now, do you even remember the last time you were faultless? I realize we all play the blame game, and we want to point the fingers and say, well, it wasn't my fault, and that person's to blame, but when you... When you put your head on your pillow at night, you really do know that you're at fault for a lot of things, and you're guilty, and you're not innocent. Christians are going to be presented faultless before God. Now, we can't even wrap our minds around that, can we? We who are so faulty and so frail and feeble at times, we, we are going to be presented faultless because we've seen this in preceding weeks, that we have Christ's imputed righteousness through justification by faith. So, therefore, we possess, right now, eternal life in heaven. This is not one of those things where you say, well, you know, if I'm good enough, if I'm good enough, I'll get to heaven. I'm believing in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, but I need to be good enough to get to heaven. No. No, that's a lie. That's a lie. God is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless, literally without fault. That word was originally used of sacrifices. It was used of Christ, the faultless lamb, 1 Peter 1.19. Where there will be no blame put on your account. You know, all the things you know you're in the middle of right now and some things you feel guilty about. All those things. The blood of Christ pleads for you and the blood of Christ covers you and you stand, you will stand in the presence of God without fault. We we can't even imagine it, can we? It's like, really? There's got to be a little book somewhere. There's got to be a little book somewhere where where God's going to say, now, you did this and you did that and, and we need to talk before I let you in. It's not there. Do you even remember the last time you're innocent? God is doing this, Ephesians 5.27. He's going to present the church to himself in splendor. Like a bride on her wedding day, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. He's going to do that for us. He's in the midst of doing that for us. And he's going to bring us, next phrase, before the presence of his glory. Literally, literally, right down before the eye of his glory. Under the microscope of his glory, he's going to, he is going to give us unspeakable joy and comfort. Now, it's either that, or you will, you will have inexpressible terror. Your Bibles are probably open, so you might want to look at the next, the next book. It's Revelation, Revelation 1-7. What does it say? Behold, he is coming from the, with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. You're either going to worship him with joy, or you are going to wail on account of him. God is able and willing to present you faultless. As one writer put it, not as those who have never been faulty, but as those whose faults shall not be imputed to their ruin. This is eternal security, folks. This is the perseverance of the saints. This is God persevering us. This is the most comforting of, of doctrines, by the way. And I'm always feeling sorry for those who think they can lose their salvation. And the reason why is anyone who's professing faith in Christ and thinks they can lose their salvation thinks that mankind is actually better than he really is. And they're deceived about sinfulness, about how bad sin really is, and they're deceived about righteousness. Total depravity tells me I cannot keep myself saved. Left up to me, it's hell. Only Jesus saves. And by the way, if we're not eternally secure in Christ, then God's purposes can be thwarted, and God's plan isn't settled. And you must redefine all of salvation truth. As it is, God is able to make you stand... Before the presence of his glory with great joy. Like Luke 1.14, the good news of great joy. This is exceeding joy. This is joy with exaltation. This is leaping for joy. When was the last time you leapt for joy? Have you ever leapt for joy? Not where someone says to you, hey, uh, jump in the air and kick your feet together. And while you're up in the air, I will take a picture of you and post it on social media. No, When he actually leapt for joy, now you're thinking to yourself, well, this is my great joy, right? Actually, first, it's, it's God's. What, what joy are we, are we talking about here first? God's joy over saving you? This is referring to Jesus' joy. Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, Hebrews 12, 2. And it is also, you're not being left out here, it is also the resulting joy of believers. So you're in on this. But it's not first your joy. It's God's joy first. 1 Peter 1.8 says that we rejoice in Christ with joy inexpressible. Joy that you can't even, you can't even describe it. It's so amazing and it's from God and you, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory Receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is what God is doing for those in Christ with great joy. This is, this is your response as a Christian at your ultimate salvation. Joy is the theme of heaven. I love how Zephaniah describes God. God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, who will rejoice over you with joy. God is going to rejoice over you with joy. Look at verse 25. To the only God. Our Savior. God is a saving God. Unlike the evil and indifferent false gods that humans and demons invent. Monotheistic nature of faith here. The Father is the Savior as is the Son. Whatever false teachers may say, there is only one God and one Savior. The triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And, and God is getting attributed to him four attributes here in verse 25. First is glory. We're talking about glory today, right? Glory, it's the Greek word doxa, and it's really hard to define. You ever come across a word where you're like, I can't, I can't nail this one down? The closest words to, to glory in, in the Greek is radiance and moral splendor. But what do we mean when we speak of glory as related to God? What do we mean when we speak of the glory of God? Here, we cannot, with our finite minds, fully tell the infinite glory of God, but we must express it. We're aware of God's glory, but we're not fully able to describe it. Glory is not an everyday word that you're using all the time. Somebody needs to pick that phone up. Um, glory gives the perspective to our values, calls us to deeply worship God. Think of it the Old Testament. Glory comes from the Hebrew word kabod. It means heavy or weighty. What it means is how impressive God is, how, how worthy he is. It's related to a word meaning to beautify. How beautiful, how, how impressive, how worthy God is. Now, human glory is is all subjective. You know, we're voting on who's the best at this or that. God's glory is objective. Human glory is rooted in someone else's evaluation of you. God's glory is rooted in his very nature. We should be glad. We're very glad. Uh, you recognize God's glory and, and really everything you're taking pride in and worked up about fades to nothingness. You're like, it doesn't matter as much as I'm saying it matters. New Testament word for glory, doxa, uh, when when applied to us, it's what everybody thinks about you. It's the opinions of others. It expresses the value that people put on you because of your accomplishments. That's what the Greek's highest goal was, by the way, to be honored and praised by other people. We're just like that. We put so much weight on our achievements, on our awards, on a list of things, we can say, look what I accomplished. But the idea of glory is completely transformed in the Bible. Uh, When the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, they chose doxa to translate the Hebrew kabod. So glory as just mere human opinion was radically transformed into glory as the majesty associated with God's revelation of himself to mankind. Far different than the world being impressed by appearances. I mean, we're all worried, aren't we, about what we look like or what people think of us? Some of you spent a lot of time in front of a mirror this morning because you are like, you couldn't get your hair just right. Or you didn't like the way your clothes were looking. And others of you are like, you know, I am so worried about what people are going to think of me once they hear this, that, and the other about me. We worry about our looks, we worry about our reputation. Remember when I was a kid, I had a weird part on the left side of my head. Think Napoleon Dynamite with brown hair, okay? And I just wasn't as cool as him, and he was pretty dorky, right? And and nothing changed until I I was encouraged to let my naturally curly hair just go into a fro. Forget about the part. But you know the weird thing about it? I'm serious. I showed up the next day after the hairstyle changed, and somehow I was cooler than I was the day before. People are desperately seeking admiration and and approval of other people. We're trying to get wealth and position and glory and fame, but Christians, we're to have a completely different set of values. True glory is found only in God's splendor and magnificence, and we see it as we recognize his greatness seen in his actions toward us in Christ. The glory of God in Christ it's who he is, it's what he does as God. It's his magnificence, his greatness, his majesty, his fame, which is independent of all. It's his self-contained glory, independent, dependent on no one. Hebrews 1, 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So we're talking first of God's glory. There's three more, three more words that are describing God as well. Majesty, that refers to God's greatness. Literally, the awe-inspiring transcendence of God. And dominion, that's his strength, that's his might, that's his power, and his resulting mighty deeds. And then authority, that's the Greek word exousia. It's his legitimate power to act. It's basically his jurisdiction his domain, his liberty to control things, his sovereignty, the sovereign freedom of action he enjoys as creator. So we give glory in salvation and in life as believers to God. To God. And we do so, secondly, through Christ. We do so through Christ. Jude 25, again, it sa- it, it go- keep going through that, that verse. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and look at those pronouns. Look at, look at the personal character and the nature. Our Savior, our Lord. Now, we are Trinitarian. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, co- all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. Sometimes people will maybe say to a Christian, you're a deist. Well, calling a Christian a deist is like calling an Airbus A380-900 a glider. you got 900 people on this plane. Now, as a cruising altitude of 40,000 feet, it can glide about 130 miles without power. But its power, its functionality are far more complex than a glider. It is not helpful. It is not even a close description. It's not even close to accurate. Christian faith is not generic theism. Christianity is Trinitarian theism. Uh, The God of Abraham is the God revealed in Christ. Jesus Christ is not one prophet among many. He is God incarnate. And and by the way, Jesus is not the exclusive revelation of God. God has revealed himself in nature, uh, but he has most significantly and specifically revealed himself in Scripture. So Christ is God's conclusive revelation revelation conclusive we know him as the son of david cosmic king absolute sovereign authority what he says goes we know him as the son of god deity same essence as the father has a divine nature he is to be worshipped as god we know him as son of man signifying his, his splendor his power uh, which more clearly implies deity than the son of god he's the suffering servant dying in our place He's the prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, Jesus speaks for God. The Logos, God's supreme decisive word. As priest, he represents us before God. Offers the supreme sacrifice of himself. He is our priest forever. As king, he rules with absolute authority and sovereignty. And he is Lord. He is our Lord. He's the imperial authority over all of creation and he is our Lord, whom we personally submit to as king. So glory is to God and through Christ. And then look at verse 25 again, down to the end there. Last phrase. Before all time, and now, and forever. You got Past, present, and future there. Uh, these attributes of God, glory, dominion, power, and authority, do not change. God's not going to change the game on you. You know how people change contracts and people change all their agreements? God's not going to change the game in salvation on you and say, you know, wait a minute, time out. Oh, no. The glory, the, the ability to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, is fixed forever because God does not change. His plan is going to be carried out. Salvation is completely secure because God's purposes stand. And before all time, he was praised as having all glory and majesty and dominion and authority. But notice it says in verse 25, And now, and now, God is worthy of all glory, will be glorified in and through his people in Christ, now and forever. So let's look at now and let's look at forever. We we cannot glorify God, by the way, unless God grabs a hold of us and gives us new life and regeneration. It's based on God's free, sovereign choice, His electing grace. We hear the gospel call to follow Jesus. We respond in faith and obedience and repentance. That's conversion. Results in immediate justification and then ongoing sanctification and then ultimate glorification. All because of Jesus. None can be attributed to us. We were dead. God made us alive. All glory and salvation goes to God alone and we praise the glory of God's grace forever, and we do so imperfectly here on earth, and we will do so perfectly in heaven someday. Arthur Pink, he lived uh, between 1886 and 1952, wrote this about about that. He not only chose you before you chose him, John 15, 16, and loved you before you had any love for him, 1 John 4, 19, but acted upon you before you acted toward him. He had to speak the quickening word before you could come forth from your spiritual grave, John two forty three. Open your blind eyes before you were able to see your lost condition. Change your heart before you were deposed to seek him and draw you, John six forty four. before you came to him. Thus you have no ground for boasting, nothing for which you can take any credit for yourself. All the glory of your salvation belongs alone to the Lord. So we glory, give glory to God through Christ, and we do it from us, the overflow of our hearts, God who loved us first, and we love him so much that we want to glorify him. But specifically how? What's it looking like on a daily basis? I want you to stay with me here in Jude, and I want you to uh, look at verses three and four. I'll give you one way, you you wanna glorify God right now? Then, Then do what verses three and four says. Now, Jude starts this way, he goes, I was really eager to write to you about our common salvation. He was all about wanting to talk about this awesome salvation. But then he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, to contend for the faith once for all delivered. Why, because of all the apostates that were pulling people away from glorifying God. So the first thing you can do, if you wanna glorify God now, is contend earnestly for the faith. Contend is an urgent imperative to fight strenuously for truth. You're like a soldier entrusted with guarding treasure. False teachers preaching a counterfeit gospel mislead many, so you're being called to, to know sound doctrine and discern truth from error, and even expose error. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, Paul said to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love in Christ. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, the gospel. Contend for the faith, all salvation faith in Scripture. Once for all delivered, God's revelation given that is not going to be added to. It's complete, it's sufficient, it's finished, it's fixed for all time. You study the word and preach the word and fight for its preservation. Why? Why? Because it says that some have crept in unnoticed. Now, I've been watching the door, by the way. I've been watching the door for you since I've been up here preaching. I've been watching the door, and I haven't seen any coyotes creep in unnoticed. Now, I can't tell you that no snakes have slithered in under the door because I haven't been watching it that well. Are your feet on the ground, by the way? You might just want to look down. Judas saying, uh, certain people have crept into the church unnoticed amongst us, and guess what? Long ago, they were, they were designated for condemnation. They were, they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is serious. You know, some people say, You know, I will refuse to worship a God who would send anyone to hell. Uh, Soon I'm going to preach on the reality and eternality of hell, but today we're more interested today at least in the reality and eternality of heaven and the glory of God there. But some people say that, like, I refuse to worship a God who would send people to hell. Well, those who would define God's love in a way that denies his holy wrath don't worship the creator revealed in the Bible, They're worshiping something of their own own imagination. Other people will say, you know, to me, God is, dot, 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 and just fill in the blank. I would just say it doesn't matter how you define God, it matters how he defines himself. That we must not adopt cultural views of God that that are against Scripture. We need to allow Scripture to reveal God to us. There are professing believers, by the way, who won't give God glory. They'll say, you know, I got salvation in Christ, but I'm going to live. Anywhere, you know, any way I want to live, I'm going to be able to do that. And people are doing this all left and right, right? And it's just happening all over the place. A professing believer who won't give God glory is like, like a rogue novice tour guide at the Grand Canyon who's wearing a blindfold all the time. And they can't see the canyon due to wearing the blindfold. And so they're blinded the magnificent magnitude and glorious grandeur of the, of the canyon. And so they're just into taking side roads leading away from the canyon, the flat and easy roads. And they lead others away from the awe-inspiring canyon into barren deserts. That's what people are like who say, you know what? I don't want a God that's revealed like the one that's revealed in the Bible. You want to contend earnestly for the faith? Look at verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, by the way... Jude's not switching gears here and saying, well, you know, it started by God's grace, and now you get to uh, finish it up. But that's that's the, uh, what Paul said to the Galatians, like, who has bewitched you? Really, it started by the Spirit, you're going to continue it in the flesh? What he is saying here is an imperative, and it highlights the believer's um, obedience, our responsibility to obey the word of God and faithfully live out the salvation we've been given. He's basically saying the same thing Paul said in Philippians 2, 12, and 13, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling as God works in you to will and do his good pleasure. So continue obediently as opposed to being disobedient and incurring the discipline of God. Be built up in the word. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Look forward to Christ's return. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. You contend for the faith. And then do what verses 22 and 23 say. Look at those two verses. You know what else you should do? You want to glorify God today, now? Have mercy on people. Be merciful. It says in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. You should be merciful for sincere doubters who need compassion. It says save others by snatching them out of the fire. It's unbelievers who need to be snatched from the proverbial fires of hell that they will enter really if they go into a Christless eternity. And it says to others, show mercy with fear. Those who have fallen prey to false teaching and aren't glorifying God, they deserve mercy, but you've got to handle with care. Be careful. And the best way I've found to have mercy on other people is to remember how much I need mercy every day. Go over to verse 2. Go back to the beginning and look at verse 2. Jude says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you may you have these things in abundance. Now I know a lot of us considering our entangling sin wonder, can I glorify God with my warped mind, my evil tongue, my temper, my pettiness, my uh, consuming idolatry? And I want to remind you about something that you might not know, the the reformation was not just a doctrinal issue. The purity of worship was a major concern. They knew Romans 1 talked about the basic sin of man being a refusal to honor God as God and thank him for what he has given. That we suppress the truth of God, the knowledge of God, and make all sorts of lesser gods. Our our hearts are idol factories. Now, some idolatry is obvious. You know, if you go out today and you start worshiping a tree or a rock, someone's probably going to tackle you. All right? But what if your idolatry is more subtle What if you exalt your ideas above God's word? What if you exalt your human reason above God's revelation? You substitute anything for God and you try to have him share his glory with with another. Anytime we deny one of his attributes, by the way, we're saying he's less than the sovereign Lord of the universe. What we should be denying is ourselves. Because showing mercy towards others demands us to deny ourselves, which literally means to say no to yourself, to repudiate yourself, to not do the thing you want to do. That's against the word of God. If you look at at the Bible, you look at every biblical exhortation to self-denial, they're always in light of the glory to come. Titus 2, 11 through 13 says, the grace of God has appeared, offering salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of my favorite authors, Elizabeth Elliot, wrote about one of my other favorite authors, Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary in India, and Elizabeth Elliot wrote this of Amy Carmichael: Her great longing was to have a single eye for the glory of God. Whatever might blur the vision God had given her of His work, whatever could distract or deceive or tempt her to seek anything but the Lord Jesus, she tried to eliminate. That's denying yourself. 2 Peter three eighteen says: Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever, to the day of eternity. Here's what you can measure, just today, if you want to go, I want to glorify God today. Measure the words you want to say and the actions you want to engage in by that old adage, is it true? Is it it kind? And is it necessary? Is the thing I'm going to say or do true, kind, and necessary? You want to contend earnestly for biblical faith, you need to have mercy. And then I want to give you one more. You need to Look at verse 24. Go back to verse 24. Remember what God is able to do, what God is going to do for believers. Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So live joyfully in Christ. Live joyfully in Christ. One day you will have abject, unmitigated, ceaseless joy that you will have in the presence of God in glory. You'll be free, you'll be accepted, you'll be blameless in the presence of God. Jonathan Edwards said, What is glorifying God but a rejoicing at that glory he has displayed? The happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God, by which also God is magnified and exalted. See, God made us to respond to him in worship, to offer him praise, to worship him in our hearts and with the people of God and worship as we hear and obey the word, worship as we sing praises and as we work and as we serve. And many of us are asking this question, can I live to the glory of God with difficult relatives, with people who don't understand me? Can I live to the glory of God in a wheelchair or with... Cancer, or with agonizing pain, or just with all my sinfulness, can I live to the glory of God without succeeding as success is measured in this life? Can I live to the glory of God in a difficult marriage, or single and wanting to be married, or if I'm really young and no one seems to notice me, or I'm really old and people seem to be pushing me off to the side? Can I glorify God? And if you're a believer in Jesus, the answer is yes, because of Jesus. The treasure we have, 2 Corinthians, the treasure we have is, is in clay pots, right? So the glory is in what the pot contains. The glory is God's. I want to end by asking you a question, and I don't think it's going to be the question that you think I'm going to ask you. What do you think of when you hear the name John Calvin? For many, his name evokes negative images of a harsh, unreasonable ivory tower theologian. Well, you need the truth about Calvin. The truth is, he was caring, he was humble, he was scripture saturated, and above all, he was passionate about God's glory. He described himself as somewhat unpolished and bashful. So, how did a studious young Humanist scholar of the late 1520s, early 1530s become such a powerful force for the gospel. Simple answers found in a letter he wrote in 1564 to one of his friends. He says, It is enough that I live and die for Christ, who is to all his followers a gain both in life and death. He's saying, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1:21. Calvin prayed. I offer my heart to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. You Want to you glorify God today? Offer your heart to God right away and with a sincere heart. Calvin wrote, Until men recognize they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. Unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. You can glorify God now by joyfully delighting in the riches that he has given you in Christ. You want to be ready to joyfully praise God forever in heaven? Praise Jesus now. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that forever we will praise the glories of your grace. Thank you for the immeasurable riches you've given us in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that your word tells us that we are glorified, that somehow we participate in in your glory. Thank you, Lord, that as you glorify your children, you are glorifying yourself. Thank you, Lord, that. Your, you will give us clear sight in that day, perfect sight in that day, and your glory will be clear. And Lord, until then, I pray that, that we would love you who has loved us so much with all of our hearts and minds and soul and strength, that we would give glory to you alone through Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen.